The Bitcoin main chain is a large distributed ledger of transactions. Bitcoin is useful for maintaining a trusted record of payments, but it's not necessarily practical for small day-to-day payments. Bitcoin payment channels allow users to issue small payments to each other without paying the high transaction cost and latency of going through the main chain. When payment channels are connected to each other, a lightning network is formed. Lightning network is often referred to as a second layer scalability solution. We've done some previous shows about lightning network, and today's show complements those shows. Alex Bosworth is a lightning infrastructure lead at Lightning Labs, a company that builds infrastructure for scaling blockchains. In today's show, Alex explains how Bitcoin payment channels work, and he also provides some context on how developed the modern infrastructure is in terms of practical use cases for Bitcoin. If you want to find all of our old episodes about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and we've done a lot of them, you can download the Software Engineering Daily app for iOS or Android, or you can go to softwaredaily.com to find the links to those apps. Thanks to Alex for coming on today's show, and I enjoyed talking to him about Lightning Network. Alex Bosworth, you are the infrastructure lead for Lightning at Lightning Labs. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. The first question I have for you is, why doesn't Bitcoin scale in its initial design, the Satoshi white paper design? Why doesn't that design scale? Well, I mean, it depends what you want out of scaling. So if you're just talking about the mission of digital scarcity, then the design scales pretty okay. It's kind of like This is something that, you know, is a baseline, kind of like a Federal Reserve for the Internet that, you know, you can place your your trust in that everybody can audit it. But the the problem with, you know, everybody auditing everything is that the more people who join and the more people who audit kind of gets out of hand. It's like if you're in a conversation with like 10 people and then probably everybody can kind of take turns and start talking to each other and listening to each other. But the more people you add the more it gets out of hand as, as, you know, just everybody's talking and everybody's trying to listen. So there's that fundamental limitation on how much can really be audited and how much you can really publish. You said something there, scarcity. So I think your idea is that Bitcoin represents digital scarcity. What do you mean by digital scarcity? Well, so like the internet, it's kind of a virtual world, right? It's not connected to our real world very much. You know, anybody can be anything. And that's kind of a problem for like the digital currency that predated Bitcoin is just that, you know, anybody could kind of conjure it out of thin air or get rid of it. So it's difficult to build applications and use money when the money can just go away. So using proof of work is how we kind of created this idea of how we could tie virtual currency back into the real world in a way that you can't just manipulate it because it has a real-world cost. If Bitcoin did scale, or if some kind of digital scarcity system did scale, what kinds of applications would that give us? How would that change our everyday lives? Well, so the digital scarcity part scales pretty well. It's just that we now need to build kind of like last-mile applications on top of that digital scarcity. And so that was already thought ahead of with the programmability of Bitcoin. So, you know, when you send Bitcoins, you're actually sending to like a program and we've been able to upgrade the, you know, the, what you can express in those programs. And based on the programmability of Bitcoin, we can create different solutions based on different things that people want out of using that digital scarcity as kind of like a foundational unit. So like if we wanted to pay every single transaction that we would ever want to do in our entire lives, we can build systems on that and they can be rooted in the digital scarcity of the blockchain, but they don't have to actually access and manipulate the blockchain in every single transaction. People often think of the main chain of the Bitcoin blockchain as the source of truth. Can we write all of our transactions on this main chain? I I think that's not too feasible. I mean, even at the start of when Bitcoin started to have value, People created like these order books uh, for people trading Bitcoin. It didn't make sense to have every single order 
hit the blockchain. And that was just expensive and unnecessary. So the blockchain really, in that formative time, became something where you would settle between different exchanges. And as it grows and improves, I think we can, we can take that kind of principle that the blockchain has a, has a specific role and build you know, alternatives to exchanges or better exchanges that, like, bring, that keep that, that preserve as much of that trustlessness that the blockchain provides in the last mile applications. Today, we're doing 10 transactions per second, I believe, on the main chain. But there is all of this trading volume that goes through exchanges and Coinbase. We have some ability to buy and sell Bitcoin and make transactions with Bitcoin at a, at a high rate. How are we avoiding network congestion today? In the beginning of, you know, when these exchanges or when people were writing wallets, the blockchain was kind of like an open field. Like there was just, you know, they didn't have to think about that it was a limited resource. So they programmed their blockchain software in a very inefficient ways. So I think a lot of the reason that we've been able to like keep growing and not hitting these limits as much as as much as we are is that we can kind of make more, our systems for for going to the blockchain more efficient. So what is the state of the art today for the you know if I buy some bitcoin on Coinbase for example how is that purchase of bitcoin getting written to the main chain when i buy through centralized infrastructure like coinbase how is that making to the main chain well if you buy it on coinbase and you leave it in the custodial wallet it won't go to the chain it will just be dealt with internally by coinbase and that's basically how they've always done it got it and if i do choose to make a transaction directly with the bitcoin network how expensive is the transaction fee that I'm paying? Well, Coinbase has the opportunity to batch transactions. So it would be less expensive if Coinbase does a withdrawal on your behalf because they can merge it with a lot of other transactions that other people are making. But it would still have a cost. Everybody in the world has to audit this transaction. At the moment, like the blockchain fees are pretty low. It can cost you know as little as a penny even for a non-batch transaction. So you know it's not too expensive right now, but it could go, it could go up. Although, in some sense, a penny for a transaction fee is quite expensive because if I want to support, let's say I want to support every article I ever read on the internet with a penny, then I'm also going to have to pay a transaction fee of a penny, and that becomes preponderously expensive. Sure. I mean, if you want to scale to you know unlimited heights, then you kind of have to think about new systems to support that other than broadcast to everybody and persist that data on a chain that doesn't ever go away. How important do you feel these kinds of solutions are? Like micropayments, this idea of being able to send a penny to somebody across the world, is this actually an application that matters for us to build? Is it really going to add that much value to the economy? I'm not too sure. I mean, I think it's a market question. So we kind of just have the platform for people to kind of experiment with and build applications on. And if we have this ability to go to micropayments, then possibly somebody will invent something amazing. But I don't think it's like like the ability to send, you know, the tiniest of tiny payments is blocking any amazing application today. It's just something that if we add this as a capability, people can can think of new ideas to use it use it for. Before we get into scalability, the actual engineering of it, help me motivate this a little bit more. What would we get out of having a more scalable Bitcoin blockchain? What kinds of applications could be built? What would be exciting about that? Well, it depends what you mean by scalability. So like, if you mean like the, the blockchain, how can we extend it to support something like a payments rail, then using something like Lightning then there's a lot of exciting opportunities because we can start to onboard people who are using it as payments and we can add it as a platform for building like applications that pay each other or pay very rapidly. Even just basic scaling solutions like SegWit, you know, doubling the capacity of the transactions that can make it over the wire are helpful for just keeping infrastructure growing and making it so that we can smoothly transition into all sorts of different solutions for different problems. Right. So today, for my business, there are so many different situations that I use for paying people, so many different applications I use for paying people. I use Venmo, PayPal, 
I use payroll stuff. All of these are, are for different applications. They all have these different fees. And then if I have to transfer money across the world to somebody, I have to use another application for that, and I pay a different fee for that. And even just the application of person-to-person payments, you know that that would be more feasible, more more widespread. It'd be easier to build applications for those things. So, but today you're saying I can spend a penny and transfer money to you, Alex. So, what's wrong with the situation today? Why doesn't why doesn't person-to-person payments work today on the Bitcoin blockchain? I'd say today person-to-person payments work pretty well on the blockchain. It's just that if you went to go build an application and you were thinking down the road about using that same functionality, then you might start to be worried that is this going to hit some walls in the future? And it would hit some walls. So, you know, billions of people all wanted to use the same resource and the resource would become expensive. So let's take an example. In, I guess, the end of last year or at the beginning of this year, Stripe stopped working with cryptocurrencies as a means of payment and I, I think you know it ultimately boiled down to the rapid fluctuation in price and something about the network and I don't know what like Stripe is a perfect example because people build applications on top of Stripe. Why did Stripe stop accepting Bitcoin as a means of payment? I didn't follow that exactly, but it's very feasible to me that the volume of payments are just low in Bitcoin. One problem is that it, you know although Bitcoin seems like a big community. Actually, in reality, out of the world, how many people have Bitcoin and how many of those people want to really actively spend their Bitcoin? You know, I've been a merchant and I accept PayPal and credit cards, you know, from before Bitcoin existed. And then I added Bitcoin as an option. And even, you know, in boom times, even when transaction fees were very, very low, it's just that and even if I gave, you know, big discounts for people to use Bitcoin, the appeal of spending Bitcoin just for the, the number of people willing to spend Bitcoin are just low in comparison to other forms of revenue. And I think part of that is the volatility. The thing I think about, what I think about Bitcoin is that, it, you know, it has to find a niche. I don't think it has, in the beginning, if it goes head to head exactly with payments, exactly with making the, you know, the experience better for people in the ways that they already use stuff. I don't think it's, that's the, uh, the best approach because, you know, Bitcoin is like a revolutionary system. It's not just like an incremental improvement over the past. It's like a totally new system with its own strengths, but also its own drawbacks. So I can see why people who are trying to fit it into that model that they're already familiar with had problems to integrate it. Is it more a case of Bitcoin doesn't scale in terms of if we want to really build a widespread financial system? So the demand today for using Bitcoin for person-to-person payments is not there. And maybe that's just a question of market penetration. People are just using it for speculation and store value today. But over time, as more and more people have this, they're going to want to use it for actual transactions. There will be increased market penetration, and we want to be ready with scalability solutions when there's more market penetration for this currency. Is that what you're suggesting here? I'm not sure I'd say that. I mean, I, I view store of value and just holding on to Bitcoin and speculating on Bitcoin even. Those are all things that people choose to do. And that's how they choose to use Bitcoin. And so I think those are valid uses of Bitcoin. And as Bitcoin grows, I think there's you know not a huge problem of getting millions of people to, to take ownership and you know use the store of value properties of Bitcoin. I'd, I'd say more as as terms of growth is it would be nice to build more applications on top of this scarcity that we have. And it would certainly be nice to make payments, but I don't think that it's, you know, the only, the only solution, the only appeal of, of Bitcoin. And there's many others aside from payments, many other uses aside from payments that are also pretty exciting. But do you feel like the, uh, because you're suggesting that the scalability of Bitcoin is not really being tested today, but you think that there are going to be applications built in the future such that the scalability will be tested. And maybe you're not exactly sure what those applications will be, but you're just saying they will be built at some point. Well, I mean, some people kind of looked at the blockchain and ignored the fundamental scalability challenges when it when it's used as a payment rail. And so some people thought, that blockchain should only be about being a payment rail and that all of our transactions should go on this globally shared resource. And I think 
there was this, that was an incorrect perception. And people knew that from day one. The responses to the white paper were that, you know, if this is going to be used for payments, it's, once it gets to be an enormous size, it's going to cost an enormous amount to sync to everybody and have everybody validate. Right. Okay. I, want, I do want to get into payment channels and the Lightning Network. I just really want to understand your perspective on when we're going to see applications that are going to test the scalability. Like, when when is this actually going to be in widespread use? And just, you know, I fully believe it will happen. I'm just better trying to understand your vision for how this develops. Do we need better framework? Do we need better programming frameworks? Do we need better support for non-fungible tokens or you know, something like that, or smart contract support. Like, What is the bottleneck to these kinds of applications that are really going to put the scalability tests on this blockchain? As far as the blockchain goes and not other mechanisms like payment channels, I'd say the biggest obstacle is education and building demand for a, a currency that has the properties that Bitcoin offers. And I think that that's actually happening and more and more people are learning about Bitcoin and understanding like why it's compelling. But I think that's like the biggest obstacle is that we need to get more people to understand it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that because I would say, you know, I want to be, I want to be working with currencies that I can actually understand. I mean, I spend my day talking to people about pretty complex software engineering projects, but I can't understand how USD works. I don't understand wh- like how much there is and how you know how the volume of USD increases or decreases. And I'm guessing most people don't understand it either. Bitcoin, I have had much less trouble understanding. So it seems like a better currency for us to be for us to be using. But you're right that it just takes more education for people to understand that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, not even the the internals of Bitcoin, but kind of just getting people to understand that fiat has all these drawbacks. You know, a lot of times fiat's going to have inflation. So people don't really realize that they're getting paid less every year, that all of the money that they have in the bank is is to, is inflating away. And they they maybe don't realize that if, a, if their government changes, that their savings could be wiped out, or that it's difficult to use the fiat with uh, global digital systems where trust isn't too much of an option. So you know, even if you don't understand the internals of the blockchain, I think it's interesting to have, it would be helpful for more people to understand like the individual strengths of the of Bitcoin. All right. Agreed. What is a payment channel? Okay. So a payment channel is kind of a solution to the fact that using the blockchain is expensive. And the way it works is I and another, you have maybe two people and they lock their funds together in a address that the, the blockchain knows about. It knows that it's locked between these two people. And then these two people start to trade unsigned or signed transactions back and forth that represent an internal balance that they have between themselves. And they avoid broadcasting it to the blockchain because they know that they're going to have these long-lived back and forth trade between each other. And then they always have these signed transactions, so they always could go to the blockchain, but they choose not to to avoid paying fees. All right. Let's say you and I, Alex, you and I want to set up a payment channel, and you want to regularly pay me for podcast episodes. You want to pay me a dollar whenever I post a podcast episode or a dollar equivalent in Bitcoin. How would we set up that payment channel? Yeah. I mean, there's actually lots of different instructions for payment channels. But basically, we would lock our funds together in an output that was a two of two multi-sig output, where it requires both of our signatures on the blockchain to, to move money around. But we'd go through a setup phase of how we did this so that if the other side stopped responding, that we'd be able to get our money back. And then once we'd had, the, had our funds locked up from the perspective of the blockchain, then I would start giving a transaction that if it were broadcast on the blockchain would assign $1 to you and then the, the remainder back to myself. And then every time I listened to a podcast and paid an additional dollar, I would add a dollar to the total that you would receive and then subtract a dollar from the amount that I would get. And then if we decided that we're done with podcasts, we would say, or maybe I'd exhausted the payment channel, then we would take that sign tra- the final signed transaction and broadcast it on the blockchain. And the, the money would be back on the chain and the payment channel would be, would be torn down. 
Now, in order to set this up, I'm going to want to know that you actually have money to pay me over time. I and mean, we're going to set up this payment channel. I want to know that whenever I publish a podcast episode, I'm going to be paid a dollar. How are you guaranteeing to me that you have this reservoir of capital to pay me over time? Right. That's where the initial blockchain transaction comes in. So you, as the counterparty, can see that the funds were locked on the chain. And they're locked to a two of two, which means it requires your signature in order to move them on the chain. So you have as much assurance as the chain gives you that the funds are there. Right. And so what if I turn evil and I post one million podcast episodes and charge you a million dollars? What happens then? Well, because it's a two of two, it requires both of our agreements to move the state forward. So you you can't unilaterally create transactions that spend the money. It it requires our cooperation. But what if I say, hey, I held up my end of the deal. I published podcast episodes, and now you've got to pay your million dollars. Wouldn't you be reneging on the guarantees of your payment channel conditions? I mean, yeah, individually. So let's say you gave me a, a podcast and I didn't pay for it. Well, it depends how you're, how you're doing this payment system. So if you charge each podcast individually, then if you deliver me a podcast and I don't pay for it, then you can close the payment channel. If you, and then once you close the payment channel, that means you broadcast a signed transaction to the blockchain, which represents the last state that we both agreed upon. But it, the payment channel doesn't solve the who goes first aspect of trade. So like if I take an apple from a store and then run away with it and I didn't pay I mean, that's still a problem. So, you know, if you don't trust somebody, maybe you require that they pay first and then you give them the apple. In databases, we have these historical uh, algorithms for doing things with databases in a way that that guarantees certain properties about those databases. So we have two-phase commit. We have three-phase commit. These are useful for walking us through the different steps of a database commit such that we can we can know that okay this database has been fully written to and there's not going to be conflicting understandings of the conditions of the database or if there are going to be conflicting understandings of the database from the standpoint of different nodes we at least have some framework for understanding those consistency issues when you think about the the process of committing a transaction within a payment channel, what are the different phases and how do we get guarantees around the reliability of a payment channel? Yeah, there's a lot of phases that go into payment channel systems like Lightning. So once you start the payment channel, before you are going to actually lock up your funds, need to make sure that there's a there's an exit path first so it actually involves kind of creating multiple transactions where before you're willing to actually deposit the funds in one transaction you get a signature from your counterparty that can send the funds back to you uh, in the case that there's you know a problem maybe they go away so and then once you have your funds that are locked into the payment channel and you have this refund transaction that you can you can sit on you then make payments within the payment channel. And uh, the, way that, the way that that works is almost always, uh, I think always based on incentives. So if I want to progress the payment channel to a new state, I need to, what, what's going to happen is that there's going to be two transactions. There's going to be the transaction at the current state, and then I'm going to propose a new state of the, of the, of the payment channel. And I'll offer that signed new state to you and ask you, do you want to move to this new state? And the reason that you would want to move to the new state is that the person who goes first has a lower incentive. So like if I'm paying you, I'm going to reduce my own local balance and increase your balance correspondingly. And so you'll have an incentive to say, oh, this new state seems good to me. And that also works. So in payment channels, like bi-directional payment channels, but just in general in payment channels, we don't want to have old states broadcast. We want only the current state to be broadcast. And the way that that works is also based on incentives. So once we're enlightening, once we're moving to a new state in the payment channel, we want to say, okay, we have these two signed transactions and they're both valid, 
but I want to give you this guarantee that this old trans- transaction is something that is you know never going to happen. It's never going to go to the chain. So what I do is I give you a key to that transaction that would allow you to take all the money so that that removes my entire incentive to actually ever broadcast that transaction to the chain. These payment channels, they do not exist on the Bitcoin blockchain. I mean, they make you make a transaction to the Bitcoin blockchain to initiate them or to close out the account or maybe under some other conditions. But we need servers to host the payment channels and to conduct some transactions through the payment channels and, of course, to Architect Lightning Network, which we'll eventually get into. Where do these servers live? Where do these payment channels get written to? Well, you don't necessarily need a server for a payment channel. Uh, And the thing about payment channels is, at least in the way that we've been using them, is that they can always go to the chain. It's just that you choose not to. So you have a normal transaction that could go to the chain, but we have this incentive structure where you have less incentive to go to the chain and more incentive to stay inside the payment channel. So you can have a payment channel between two parties. The only limitation, like two mobile parties, the only limitation is that they're, they have to be online at the same time because it's an interactive protocol. In order for us, we're the ones responsible for keeping the state of how much money we have around, and we're not offloading that burden off onto the greater network. Okay, but if I do want to have a payment channel where most of the transactions are not interfacing with the main chain, where are those servers being hosted? I guess it does it just depend on what payment channel provider I'm using? There should be no need for a server. The only reason that you would want to have a server is in something like Lightning Network, you'd want somebody to link payment channels together. And in that case, you would probably want that person who's linking to be online most of the time so that he'll be able to help you out. But just in principle, there's no reason that one payment channel can't be formed between arbitrary peers. So when you and I form our payment channel, are we just sending text messages to each other or we have we each have a payment channel client on our connected to our wallet and we can just communicate directly with one another all we're really doing is updating a transaction that is signed fully signed and fully ready to go to the blockchain but we're not broadcasting it to the blockchain just a normal bitcoin transaction and we're just updating it and updating it so we're updating values to to reflect like what our local balances are And then we're updating the signatures to make that a valid transaction. So it's pretty lightweight. I see. So if we think of the Bitcoin blockchain as a database, and we think of the transaction that we are thinking about writing to this to this database as a just a a single write to that Bitcoin database, we have this abstraction of a write of this write to the Bitcoin blockchain, and you and I are just interfacing with this write, this file, uh, that is going to be eventually a transaction written to the blockchain. And throughout our payment channel interactions, but you and I, when when we're interacting with this payment channel, what we're actually doing is just updating this, this file that is basically going to be eventually turned into a write to that Bitcoin blockchain. We're just preparing the write for its final state in which it will be committed to the Bitcoin blockchain. Exactly, yeah. So it's kind of like a cache. We don't want to be hitting the the database because it's expensive to hit the database. So instead, we are updating our local cache version. And then once, if something bad happens, like the other party leaves, then we have to go to the database. But otherwise, we can just hit our fast, cheap cache and update it many, many times. If it's just you and I operating on a payment channel, there's a fairly limited set of use cases for this because this is a situation where one of us could very easily take advantage of the other person because you're going to have this situation where, okay, I'm buying an apple from you and you're paying me a dollar or I'm, I'm buying an apple from you. I'm paying you a dollar every day. Uh, we do this for five days in a row. And then on the sixth day, I just take the apple and I don't transfer my dollar to you uh, on the blockchain or on the payment channel, you're just going to, at that point, you're going to be like, okay, I'm closing out the payment channel. I'm done with this, right? That's probably what, I mean, that, that might be what you would do. It depends on the scenario. But it's it's the more likely problem with a, with a person-to-person payment channel is that you've locked your funds up into this two-of-two multisig. 
and then you want to pay somebody else, but your money is you know locked to this person. So I want to buy an apple from the other vendor, but but this vendor knows that I've locked up my money with him, so he charges he increases his rate for apples or something like that. Oh, okay. So if you have the money locked up, then one of the two people could just piece out and and if they don't sign the the transaction to close out the payment channel then the money's locked up forever it's not locked up forever but there's there's a cost to close the payment channel because you have to pay a blockchain fee and then there's also a time cost so it's not the most convenient to lock your money to just random peers if you want to be paying a large set of people unless you have huge amounts of money that you can just lock money to everybody. Right. So this payment channel is going to be, there is some expiration date on it. When you, cre- you create it with an expiration date so that if you and I create a payment channel for, you know, let's say it's $20 and you commit $20 to this payment channel that's going to be locked up and then I peace out and I never again interact with that payment channel or sign it or anything, eventually a, a timestamp is going to pass at which point you can just commit that transaction to the blockchain even though I'm not going to sign it because the time, the expiration date's passed. There's different types of payment channels. One type of payment channel has like a firm expiration date that says, you know, next year, that's when you get your money back. But there's other types of payment channels where the timer will start ticking after you close the payment channel. So that's represented on the blockchain by uh, this thing called the relative time lock. So once the payment channel is closed and the, and the close is seen on the blockchain, the script says after one day passes, then you have unrestricted funds. It really depends. There's different constructions. But, but generally speaking, there's a, a time component. Number one, you've got your funds locked with somebody, and there's a time component to just unlock them and process that on the blockchain. And number two, the payment channel scripts enforce these uh, time limitations. Uh, and the reason the time limitations are there are in case the other party is broadcasting an older state where it's beneficial to them, then you need to have some time to broadcast the correct state so that you can get the correct balance deposited to your account. Okay, we've talked about payment channels in theory. Let's talk about them in a little more practice. So I believe there is an app, a, a smartphone app, for Lightning. The company, is that correct? There's like a Bitcoin wallet app that is payment channel Lightning Network enabled for for Lightning. Is that correct? There's a number of apps. If you're talking about Android, there's like an Android app called Eclair, and there's another Android app called BLW. And both of those allow mainnet Lightning Network payment channels. And BLW allows send receive, and Eclair is send only. If I set up one of these payment channels from a smartphone app, what does that do? What's going to happen? What's the flow of of communication from the smartphone app to the blockchain? Is there some application server somewhere, some centralized piece of infrastructure, or is it all dealing with just the main chain? It can be, be completely between two parties. So one BLW person can connect directly to the other BLW person it does require that you have blockchain funds. So they also have like normal Bitcoin wallets in them that uh, manage those normal Bitcoin funds. And then what happens is just like in a normal payment channel, we negotiate the creation of this channel. We say, okay, we're going to put in this amount of money. And then before we actually put in the money, we get a refund transaction that's also signed to make sure that if the other party goes away, that we'll, we, can, we can get the money back at a future point. And then once the funds are locked on the blockchain into that multi-sig output, then each client does what I talked about before. They start changing the, the signed transaction to, to increase or decrease the balances, who gets what money if the channel closes. We've talked about payment channels in some detail here. Lightning Network is a method of connecting payment channels together to interact in a network to allow payments between people who are not directly connected through a payment channel. Describe some of the applications of a Lightning Network. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm a fan of just a standard payment channel. A lot of application of the blockchain is paying repeatedly the same person over and over and over again. And in that case, a payment channel works pretty well because you can can easily get a 10x efficiency. 
because you know instead of paying you every day on the from the perspective of the blockchain i'll pay you every time payment channel closes from the perspective of the blockchain but it does run into problems when you want to like maximize the efficiency of your capital so if i want to pay to a wide set of people um, the lightning network provides this op- option to link payment channels together in a way that the payments can be routed through the links so if I have a payment channel with somebody else and that person has a payment channel with somebody else and that person has a payment channel with somebody else, I can use those connections to pay to my desired destination. What would be some real-world applications of Lightning Network payments? You know, a web store, something where you would buy you know, some clothing or something, that person would run their Lightning node. And then if one of their customers happened upon their store and they wanted to make a purchase, instead of having... so. The Lightning Network over existing payment channels offers the ability to take existing payment channels that they have with their existing peers and use those payment channels to pay through a network of other peers so that they will be able to buy the clothing that they want at the store. Describe the protocol for how these different payment channels would interact in a network. Sure. So there's lots of components to the protocol. One component is just sharing the data about who is in the network. And that actually works a lot like the Bitcoin network. Anybody who is making themselves available for routing broadcasts the channels that they have and their fees to everybody else in the network, and people pass that along. So that's the, the protocol for the, for the overall graph is uh, like a standard gossip protocol like Bitcoin uses to tell people about new blocks for new transactions. And then once you have figured out this graph of connections, the client needs to figure out what's the path that it should take through the network. And maybe there's lots of different paths. So it has to think, oh, how will I get my payment to the destination? Once it thinks about some paths that it wants to take, it uses this thing called onion routing, which means that it takes instructions about how to get to its final destination and it encrypts them into layers so that each individual node doesn't know the entire path. They know about where it's coming from and where it's going to but that's the only piece of data that they decrypt when they when they get this onion package. And then they forward it to the next person. And all these nodes have a public key. So it's, basically, it's just normal asymmetric cryptography. They decrypt their layer of the onion, and then they forward the payment to the next, to the next person. And then the payments are used as thing called the HTLC. And HTLC is what allows Lightning payment channels to route. And the way HTLC works is I lock a payment that's contingent on knowing a secret. So, and this is still a normal Bitcoin transaction, but I take some funds from our channel and I lock the funds to this, this secret. And if you knew the secret, you would be able to take the funds, but you don't know the secret. So what you do is you take the instructions from this onion package and you pass it to the next one and the next one and the next one until it finally arrives at its destination. And the destination should know the secret. And then he reveals the secret which allows an unfurling of that of that route so that so starting with the final party he takes the money that's been locked to him by revealing the secret and then the previous party can then unlock the the payment that's going to him and the previous party can then lock the payment that's going him all the way to the sender and then the sender receives the secret and then he has also has a proof that he has paid because he didn't know the secret before and now he knows a secret and he can compare it to the to the hash of the secret that was given when the invoice was created. So he knows that the, that the final destination, even without directly connecting and talking to the final destination, he knows that the final destination uh, received the payment. So if I walk into the store and I want to buy a bag of almonds or mixed nuts, and I want to pay using a lightning network, the, the store has a point of sale system for accepting payments and... I want to, you know, I don't have a payment channel established with the store. I, I'm just in town for my first my first time uh, this this week, and I have no established payment channel. But with the Lightning Network, as long as there's somebody in that network that I have a payment channel with, and there's somebody else in the network who has a payment channel with the store, a payment could be routed from me to the person that I know on the Lightning Network, all the way to the store. And if 
the point of sale system is integrated with this Lightning Network, we can, me and the store can can have a, a transaction. Is that correct? Exactly. And the, the transaction individually doesn't need to go to the blockchain. So that means it can be cheaper and also more faster. And it also doesn't need to tell, you don't need to tell everybody in the world about it. So it can be a little bit more private. Now, in order to have this happen, does there need to be a routing table somewhere? Does that need to be on centralized infrastructure? Well, so the way that the graph was propagated, just the same way that the Bitcoin blockchain is propagated, it, you tell your, all your peers and then they tell all their peers. Since you can see the, the network of connected people, you, can, you don't need to necessarily have somebody else tell you how to get from point A to point B. Um, you could do that if you wanted to. So if you wanted to create, you know, your own server that somebody could ask you, how do I get from here to there? That server could, could give you the answer to that. But it's not a requirement of the network. As my payment is propagating, for, let's say let's say the pr- payment is propagating from me to you, and then from you to, you know, some other person, and then from that person to the store, that's the Lightning Network. You and I already have this payment channel that we've established, and so I can start off by transferring to you. As the payment propagates through the network, are those different network hops, are those like atomic payments, or does the entire payment need to propagate through the network before the transaction is committed to each of the payment channels along the way? So it uses the the system that I was talking about before. So it only needs to update the people who are involved with that overall transaction, and the way it works is it's incentive-based. So why would you cooperate with helping me move my payment? Well, you'd cooperate because you'll end up with more money than before. So there's a there's a little fee attached to every single hop, and then individual operators can say what, what they want to charge for that. And you can make your own choices about how you want your payment to, to progress through there. And then that fee is reflected in the balance. And the, and the reason that we wouldn't go to the blockchain is because we don't have an incentive to go to the blockchain. So in theory, I could take an, you know, an older version of the transaction where I got more money and I could go to the blockchain. It's just that I know that my peer can go with the, with the real balance where he gets more money or maybe all the money and my version of, and then it will be disadvantageous to me. So it's not atomic in the way that it cannot ever happen. It's atomic in the way that you're incentivized to keep your payment channels open and to cooperate with your peers, and to move your payment from point A to point B. What are the unsolved problems in Lightning Network development? Well, there's lots of challenges. Currently, in the light client mode, there's not as easy of a way to keep your, keep your wallet private when you're running a light client, like an like a iPhone wallet or an Android wallet. And so the existing Android wallets that are out there, uh, they kind of leaks in privacy, and they're, they're not the most secure in terms of the blockchain validity. So one thing that's in the works that's being developed is this thing called Neutrino. And Neutrino is a new way to, to have mobile clients or light clients access blockchain data without being too burdensome, but without, also without revealing a lot of the privacy of their, of their financials. So that's, that's one problem. Another issue is like the ability to back up your channels. There's different levels of backups, but currently, like in LND, which is more of like in mobile, it's kind of a, you know in progress, and there's alpha versions for the desktop. If you're an end user, the backup situation involves you taking your local state of your channel and then trying to push it out somewhere somewhere else. And there's different ways that we can approach that. But currently, we don't have in LND, we don't have any way to to back up the state of your funds um, except for the funds that are on the chain. But within the channel, that's a backup that needs to be updated quite frequently. Another issue is uh, the autopilot. So when users download one of these wallets, they are presented with a graph. You know, they're, they're presented with that graph data of all these different peers out there in the world. And they need to decide, oh, who do I want to create payment channels with? But in order to decide that, they need to kind of do some graph analysis to say, who would be a good, good person to lock some of my funds up with? And currently, an L&D... And there's some other projects to kind of automatically pick those, those peers or make recommendations about who should be chosen as peers. But it's pretty immature. And the ideal would be you just open up your wallet and then it knows which peers are good peers to, to connect with. 
and then you don't even have to think about it. You lead Lightning Infrastructure at Lightning Labs. What does that job consist of? So Lightning Labs has kind of two focuses. One focus is on the client side. So we want people to use great end user experience apps. So like be able to use Lightning on your phone. And then the other side of that is that we want them to be able, these clients to be able to connect to great services to like use cool stores, cool applications. And that's kind of like the backend side of things. That's the infrastructure side of things. So I'm like a technical program manager working on uh, bringing those, connecting with people in the industry who are building on LND and building interesting applications and, and things to buy. And also thinking about the network as lo- at large. So just the individual routing nodes, people who operated these routing nodes to try to help people route their payments to improve those experiences, to make them stronger and more compelling. Who operates Lightning Network routing nodes today? Currently, it's in enthusiast-based or merchant-based. So the default in LND, at least, is that when you open a channel, that channel is available for routing, as long as you're not using the, like a, the mobile client or like uh, the desktop client. So that means that if you're a merchant and you're using LND, you automatically are opening up channels that can be used for routing. And there's some some popular merchants who are routers, and there's also enthusiasts who are routers. Now I see companies like Square getting enthusiastic about cryptocurrency. I saw you retweeted Jack Dorsey on, I think on Halloween, he randomly posted the Bitcoin PDF again for some reason, but... I mean, I was like, that's cool. And I retweeted it also because it's cool that Jack Dorsey's tweeting the Bitcoin white paper. But you think about something like Square, they have all these payments going through their centralized payment infrastructure. It seems like there is, there's room for companies like that to lead the adoption of Lightning Network. And I'm not, I don't exactly know what that would look like, but do you think that's, that's a possibility? I mean, you've got, Come like Square with computers all throughout the world, this seems like the perfect kind of deployment for routing in- infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, I would say like right at this moment, Lightning still has a ways to go in terms of you know all those challenges that I talked about getting it, getting people to have it on their phones, getting peer selection to be to be solid. But ultimately, you know, the goal is to get Bitcoin to be the currency that is used in every transaction. And that would force Square to have to use solutions that allow people to use Bitcoin in every payment. And one of those solutions would, would definitely be Lightning. Uh, I guess. I, I see. So they're, they're probably a little bit conflicted today because it would potentially eat into their margins if they were aggressively uh, adopting Lightning. I'm not too sure. I think like the, the biggest reticence that Square would have is just like all the other companies, that the market of people who are willing to spend Bitcoin is just a, you know, a small market. Right. So what are the engineering problems that you're most focused on solving today? The biggest one for me is thinking about improving the quality of the routing network. We have all these enthusiasts, all these people who are just turning on their computers. And then but by default in LND, we just say every channel that you're creating is also one that can be used for routing. But I'm trying to change how that is, change how that's set up so that if you are not interested in routing, that you create private channels and you stay off of this public announcement grid. And that's because if you just shut down your computer, it's not so obvious to that guy who's on his mobile phone that you're shut off. And it creates a worse experience when he goes to try to send his payment and then he hits your node, but your node is offline. You're not going to be able to route for him. So it will increase it. It will like decrease the speed of your lightning transaction because you'll have to like have it go back to back to start and then you'll try another route. So at the at this very moment, that's one thing that I'm working on is to try to change it so that the the public the set of public channels in the in this gossip network of all of the different nodes out there in the world, it, I want to make that into a, a robust network and give people also incentives and tools for how they can improve their nodes. What's the business model for Lightning Labs? I'm not sure there is something that I can really talk about in terms of the business model, you'd probably be better to ask Elizabeth Stark. I think like in broad strokes though, Lightning Labs is devoted to Lightning, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's in the name, that's in my title. So our, our first priority is making sure that Lightning is a success, that we are onboarding tons of users and that we're progressing the state of the technology to one where we can start to get people like Square on board. 
Do you consider yourself, I shouldn't use this term, I, you, I'm using it as shorthand, not as like a, a tribalistic term, but do you consider yourself a Bitcoin maximalist? Or to what degree do you do you consider Bitcoin to be perhaps better engineered, or at least the infrastructure of it is better engineered than other currencies today? I mean, I'm sympathetic to Bitcoin maximalism because I don't think it's controversial that if you look out in the universe of tokens, that the, that it's very easy to spot tokens that are just contrived and that there's maybe millions or billions of dollars being spent on things that make no sense at all. You know, I do believe that we can create more interesting token ideas and that also that, you know, my thinking for Bitcoin is that it's like a currency, but I feel like there can be other digital assets that aren't necessarily a currency, but have some value and that people can speculate on them or can hold them if they want. And also, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to people who just have their own personal desires about what they want to spend their money on. So, like, I'm not, but I'm, I'm personally not invested in all these other tokens. I have Bitcoin, for me, is the only one that I think is one that I want to hold personally. But I wouldn't say, like, Bitcoin is the, is the alpha and the omega. It, you know, there's other, like, hopefully this is like opening a universe of other applications. And one of those applications is creating tokens. We had a show recently about lowering the block propagation time through a blockchain distribution network. This was a show with BlocksRoute. BlocksRoute's a company with some great Bitcoin engineering theorists. What do you think about this approach of using a blockchain distribution network to to lower the block propagation time? I'm not a hugely interested in it, just for the for the reason that there's very limited returns to be had in the overall design. So the, the design of the blockchain is that everybody receives everything. And, you know, even if the people receive everything a bit faster than they do now, I mean, that is good, right? There's, there's no question that, you know, operating more efficiently is good. It's just that it doesn't help you too much to get to the root of the problem, which is that, that people have limited bandwidth and people have limited computing ability. And the more and more and more that you have the burden that you push on them as having to sync this global blockchain, more expensive it becomes for them to do validation that kind of underpins the whole network uh, scarcity concept. Well, Alex, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. And, you know, if you have suggestions for other people I should interview, this is a topic I would like to cover in more depth. And I know we kind of just scratched the surface, but there's plenty of time left in the, uh, you know, ensuing years before I think people will uh, have enough information about this. So I'd love to do more shows in the future. Uh, For sure. Thanks for talking to me. Wow.